If you got your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21 and 22. The words on the screen will all be there from the verses in the ESV, the English Standard Version. Today's message is called Receiving the Invitation. Um, we all love a good showdown, don't we? Um, a good versus evil. Uh, we, we love the epic Skywalker versus Darth Vader. We love uh, Aslan versus the Wicked Witch. Uh, we also love the good team, the right team to cheer for, Duke. Um, ignore the fact that they're the Blue Devils. That's a different story. The, the, but the bad guys, UNC, we're all against them, right? I don't think Chet's not here. That's too bad. Um, so, and then, of course, the most polarizing of all, the good, the valiant, the righteous, the pure Miracle Whip versus evil mayonnaise. And all the people said, that's right. Hey, hey, hey. One of the greatest books and, and then the movies of all time uh, is Lord of the Rings in, in, in the epic showdown of what is good versus what is evil. But what I love about what Tolkien does is he shows us that the ultimate showdown of good and evil is not actually the outward. It's, it's not just orcs and Sauron versus dwarves and elves. That Actually, we also see the more important battle is going on inside of the lead character's heart as Frodo is, is faced with this dilemma, this battle in his own heart to do the right thing and destroy the ring selflessly for the sake of Middle-earth or to be absorbed and, and consumed by the lust for power and keep the ring for himself. Now, Matthew has been taking us on this journey. Um, as Ross said last week, we've been headed this entire story for this collision course, this ultimate showdown. Our story in Matthew is starting to reach its climax. We're in the last week of Jesus's pre-resurrection life and mission here on earth. And we're going to see in part five, chapters 21 through 25, a clash of kingdoms. These two kingdoms, the world's kingdom versus God's kingdom. And it's a showdown of good versus evil, but it's not the war that a lot of the Jewish people were thinking. It's not a war of flesh and blood. It's not the Jews versus the Romans. That's not the battle that Jesus has come to fight. It's like Frodo, the clash of the kingdom, ultimately finds its battleground in the heart. Let's remember the song, love is a battlefield. 80s? No? Okay. Well, listen to the radio more or, or less. That's fine. Matthew's story here is been asking the question the entire time, um, who are the people of God? Or to put it another way, who will enter the kingdom of God? There is no more important question. And today he's going to show us three parables to say this issue is in the heart. It's a battlefield of the heart. And the question is, will you accept the authority of Jesus in your life? And as we hear these stories, I want to invite us to examine the Frodo-like war that is waging in our own hearts and answer the question, who is sitting on the throne of my heart? For that, first, we're going to turn to Matthew 21. We're going to see the authority, if you're following along in your notes, the authority of the king is challenged. So in verse 23 of, of chapter 21, when he, Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Now, remember, in two chapters ago, when Jesus entered into the temple, he was flipping tables and taking names. So I'm imagining when they see Jesus coming back in the temple, they might flinch a little bit. Like, is he going to go crazy again? What's he going to do? Um, the Pharisees ask Jesus, who gave you this authority? Um, but I think they mean something else. Have you ever had somebody who asked you one question, but they really meant a different question? Uh, Jill and I, when we first got married, 
the first day back after the honeymoon, we, we were here back in Alaska and uh, took off my clothes, put them uh, very close to the hamper, really, really close to the hamper on the floor. And she came in and, I, and she, she, all, she, she said, oh, uh, were you just going to leave your clothes on the floor? <laughs> now, she, 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 she asked one thing, right? But she really meant something different, right? Are you an idiot? Right? Like, are you, did I marry a slob? Like, the honeymoon is over, literally. We're going to go. But, but what happens is we see the disciples ask one thing. Or, excuse me, the Pharisees. What, what authority? What are they really asking? They want to know, Jesus, are you claiming that you are the Messiah? Because Jesus certainly walked in as though he owned the place. When they say these things, he's flipping tables. He's teaching with authority. He's healing people in a way that only the Messiah would, right there in the temple. Who, who does this guy think he is? And he knows that the question they ask him is actually a trick question. They know he's not going to deny. He's not going to say his authority is from man because he doesn't believe it is. But they say if he says that his authority is from God, we're going to charge him with blasphemy and try to kill him. So they set him up. But Jesus, he answers the question with a question. You ever had people in your life who, who every time you ask them a question, they answer back with a question? Um, you know, I, could say, I don't know, is it a problem if I leave my clothes on the floor? Right, that could have been the way I could have. I didn't do that. I, I didn't, I just put them in the hamper and we, we were still married. Uh, verse 24, Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. And he asked them, the baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? Now, Jesus isn't evading the question. He's not saying, well, I'm only going to answer your really hard question if you'll really answer, if you'll, uh, answer my question. What he's actually going to say to them, showing them, is if you answer my question rightly, then you've actually answered your own question as well. You see, John the Baptist, um, or he, oh, this, is, this is what, uh, oh, excuse me, where, where are we? Verse 25. Uh, this, is, this is what he asks them. They just, this is their response. They discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So, so here's what they understand. Back when John the Baptist was baptizing Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, this was the moment that God, through the Holy Spirit, declares that he says, this is my son. This is the Messiah. This is the king that is coming to reign. And, and therefore, this is John's message. He's pointing to Jesus. And he, they, they know, the Pharisees know, if they choose door number one and say that Jesus is, or excuse me, John's authority is from heaven, then they are bound to believe John's message, which is What? It's that Jesus is the Messiah. So he says, if you believe John's authority, if you believe his word, that I, then you're going to also believe that I am who I say that I am. You're going to believe in my authority as well. But if you choose door number two and you say that, no, this is just a guy, uh, his authority is just from men, which I don't think this is what they believed. He says, I know you're not going to say that because you're afraid. You're surrounded by a John the Baptist fan club. And you know they're going to come at you for the fear of the people you're not going to say what's actually in your heart. And so they answered Jesus, we don't know. It was really to say, we're not walking into that one. And so he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He says, if you're not willing to accept John's message, then you're not going to accept mine either. 
And so he says to them, verse 28, what do you think? And he wants to lay before them. He's going to call them out with three parables. But I want to jump ahead just for a moment to the third one. Um, So the invitation of the king extended. The invitation of the king extended. Matthew 22, we're going to leap ahead. In verse 1, he says, again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, this is the third one we're going to look at this morning. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And in this story, he unpacks it. He says, there are some who accept the invitation, and there are some who don't. In fact, there are some who are going to kill the people sending out the invitations. There's two different kinds of people in the story. Those who accept the invitation to the king's son's wedding feast, and those who reject it. And so this morning, we want to say, how do we know that we're among the ones who accept the invitation? that we're the ones who recognize Jesus' authority. Well, his parables are going to show us three things, three things. The first one, as we look at the entrance to the kingdom revealed, there's another blank for you if you're following along, the entrance to the kingdom revealed, let's look at three factors for those who will accept the RSVP. The first one is repenting of my rebellion, repenting of my rebellion. Let's go back to the first parable. My mom, um, she always very lovingly uh, says that the reason that she had children was that she didn't have to carry the groceries in herself anymore. Just gives you warm fuzzies, doesn't it? Um, And let's say that she says to me one day, to to Jeremy and I, here we are, rocking our early 90s style, uh, she says, bring in the groceries. And I'm like, on it. But then instead of actually doing it, I go and play Nintendo, because it's 1992, right? And then Jeremy, the littlest one, always the obstinate, he says, no. Then he has a change of heart. He says, you know what? I love my mommy more than my brother, and so I'm going to do what she said, and he brings the groceries in. Now, who's the one that actually obeys? It's pretty obvious, right? And Jesus makes the same point. He says, what do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind, that's the word for repent, and went. He went to the other son and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir but did not go. Which of the two did the will of the Father? And the Pharisees, the leaders, they answer correctly, the first, the first, right? So so they answer right, but what's Jesus' point? Well, this time, it's helpful because he just explains himself. He says to us in the next verse, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John, John the Baptist, came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So Jesus says, he describes these two different groups of people. He says the first group looks pretty rebellious, right? But they did what John said. Their daily lives said no. I mean, tax collectors and prostitutes, this is modern day, like an adult film star and a CEO who's embezzling and extorting, right? But when they heard God's message, John's message through God's word, they listened, right? They changed their minds, changed their lifestyles. That's what the word repent means. It means to change one's mind. That these rebels said, I'm wrong. I was wrong and I was rebelling and I'm going to change. The second group, they're the ones that look like the good guys, right? They're the ones that look like God's people, the ones that, that assent uh, verbally, but these are the, like t- today, these would be the pastors and missionaries, right? These are the priests and, and the Pharisees. But when they heard God's word, 
They rejected John's message, that they wouldn't change their mind even when the Messiah was standing right in front of them. Jesus is exposing the Jewish leaders and their hypocrisy. He says, your lives don't match up with your talk. You've said yes, but you've lived no. And the reality is a person's actions are what ultimately prove whether or not they are obedient to God. It's our actions, the fruit of our lives. Not just that I say I was going to take the groceries in, that I actually bring the groceries in. And for us today, we say, where have I said, said yes to God, but then walked off in the other direction? And there are many people who might give the lip service and they show up to the right building at the right times, right? And they say the right words, but then they're, the fruit of their lives, their heart obedience shows a no. So, so where have you said, yes, God, I'm, I'm wrong, but then you've lived as though you're actually right? Or where have we said, yes, God, I know what you want me, I, I know I, I'm going to tell people about Jesus. When's the last time you actually had a conversation with somebody, an unbeliever, about Jesus? Yes, God, I'm going to change that behavior. I'm going to change that thought process, that, that attitude, and yet we never do. I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going, to, I'm going to be generous and loving toward people, but then that's not actually the way I live. See, both groups here were called to repent. Both groups were called to obey. The question isn't, am I wrong? The question is, am I willing to admit it or not? The first step toward accepting the invitation is to repent of my rebellion, to admit that I'm wrong. The second one is recognizing God's rightful king. God's rightful king. Let's look at uh, the next parable. Here, another parable, he says, verse 33, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now, a Middle Eastern vineyard, they didn't just like instantly produce grapes. In fact, the first harvest, the first yield, would take anywhere from three to five years. So the master of this vineyard says, I don't have time to sit around waiting for these grapes to grow. I got other things to do, and he hires these tenants to take care of the vineyard for him. So he goes away. Verse 34, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. That, of course, is rightfully his. It's his vineyard. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Again, more killing, just like the people inviting them to the wedding got killed. They're killing these guys coming to get the grapes. I think the people in this day needed to add the phrase, no thank you, to their language. That would have been, that would have been nice. But they, this, is, this is what's going on here. They understand, if the master doesn't come back, the vineyard's theirs, right? The, the, the grapes are theirs. And in this, in this society, more than anything, possession of land and, and the harvest means control, it means power, it means, it means financial security for you and your family. So when the servants come, they abuse them, they kill them, they drive them away. Why? So they can maintain control of the property, of the vineyard. So then, verse 37, finally he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son, surely, right? Now, is the master being naive here? Being foolish? Like, don't you notice patterns? They killed every servant you sent. Why do you think it's going to be any different with your son? Now, in this culture, most likely, if the son was the one that actually came to them, they could have very well assumed well, the, the, the father must be dead. 
the reason the son is coming is because the father is no longer here and he's taken over. So they're thinking, if we kill the son, it's ours. This land has become ours. And in verse 38, but when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Here's the one. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. That's exactly what they do. Verse 39, they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Killed him. So Jesus asks the Pharisees a follow-up question in which their reply actually seals their own fate. Because, of course, they're the tenants in the story. Verse 40, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? What did they deserve? And they have a strong sense of right and wrong when it's not applied to their own hearts. They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus' audience would have known the prophecies all throughout the Old Testament say that Israel is usually being depicted as the vineyard. Isaiah chapter 5, it goes into a lot of detail about this, this imagery that Israel, his people, are, are like the vineyard. And what we see in the story is God is the vineyard master. Right? It belongs to him. And he sends these tenants which are Israel's leaders. And over the course of their history, we had judges, we had kings. Right now we have Pharisees and scribes and, and Sadducees. They are supposed to be leading God's people. But then inevitably they fail to do that rightly. And so he sends these servants, his messengers, prophets, who would come and tell the people, especially the leaders, you need to change your ways. You need to repent and get right with God. You are not leading in a way that worships him, that honors him. But read the Old Testament, and over and over again you see that the Pharisees are actually just a, the end of a long line of disobedient, servant, uh, disobedient tenants who have killed the leaders as they've come, rejected God's word, covered their ears to the message. And so just like the vineyard master in the story, God sends his own son, who of course is representing Jesus, now, similarly, is God naive? Is he foolish to send Jesus? Doesn't he know what's coming? Isn't he God? Well, this shows us not how naive God is, but how generous, how merciful our God is. Because he knew exactly what was going to happen to his son. He knew exactly where it was all going, and he did it anyway. Why? Because he knew, despite the greatest cost that any father could ever be asked to give, it was going to be more than worth it. He knew the glory that was coming on the other side. And God is not just merciful, but he's brilliant. And Jesus quotes to them a prophecy out of Psalm 118, because he knows what's coming as well. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He says, the very rejection of Jesus as the stone as you reject his claim to be Messiah, as you throw aside his authority and actually kill him, saying that it's a false claim, that it's blasphemy, it's going to be that very murder in which he becomes the cornerstone. He becomes the foundation of our salvation. It's the very killing of Jesus that allows him and his resurrection to offer life to everybody. And why do they want to kill him? Well, verse 38, remember what it said? Let us kill him and have his inheritance. The tenants wanted the vineyard for themselves. 
And in the same way, in pride, the Pharisees wanted control over their own lives and over Israel themselves, their way. We're back to the Garden of Eden, right? This is deja vu. We're back with a decision about fruit. And just like Adam and Eve, the Pharisees are taking the fruit on their own terms, according to their selfish desires. Remember Adam and Eve, they, they buy the lie. You can be like God. You don't need God telling you what to do. You can make the decision what's right and wrong in your life. If you want it, take it. In the same way, the Pharisees are blatantly going their own way. Adam and Eve disobeyed God's clear command, do not eat of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And in the same way, the Pharisees are rejecting God's command through John to change their minds, to admit their wrong, and receive Jesus as the promised Messiah. And so we ask ourselves as we examine our own hearts, do we bow the knee to the author of our lives, the one who has all authority? Do we see that Jesus is the one that calls the shots? I am wrong, I have rebelled, and he is right. It's his way, which is infinitely better than mine in the first place. So as you read scripture, or as you're talking to someone in the community of Jesus, and they point something out in your life that needs to change, they point you to Jesus, what does your heart do with that? Does it receive it? Does it say, I'm wrong, I need to change, humbly accepting God's word, or do you reject it and say, what I want, I take my way, not God's, I'm in control. Jesus says in verse 43, here's the, here's the conclusion, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. There's judgment coming, and we're going to get into that in the next couple chapters of Matthew. He says, I'm giving my kingdom to the kind of people who will not claim the vine for themselves, but will obediently, by faith, produce my fruit for my glory. And who is that? Who are the kind of people who will do that? Well, our third point says it's those who are receiving Jesus' right robes. Jesus' right robes. Turn to chapter 22. Now, let's remember, we, we talked about this last parable. This is the wedding feast. It's a weird ending. Um, after all the guests have entered, the king arrives. Remember, the king invited everyone. He sends the invitation to everyone. After the first crew rejects him, he says, I want you to go, go grab anybody you can find and bring them to my feast. And the wonderful news is that God invites everyone to the feast. Everyone's invited into the kingdom. But Jesus says, do not misunderstand the parable. See, we want to hear that everybody's all right exactly as they are. That God loves us and doesn't want us to change. And people use this conveniently when they want to justify a particular behavior, right? That's how God made me. He loves me just as I am. And when the blind and lame came to Jesus, he didn't say, hey, you're all right as you are, right? No, blindness is just your truth. Right? You be you. They came because they wanted Jesus to heal them. They came because they acknowledged their need for change, and Jesus was the only hope for that change. When the prostitutes and the tax collectors came to Jesus, he didn't say, you're all right as you are. Now hear me, he loved them right where they were. That's why he came and sat at the table and ate with them. He loves us exactly as we are, but he loves us too much to keep us there. His love refused to let them stay as they were. Love wants the best for the one that it loves. It wants to see a life transformed. It wants to see a life healed. It wants to see a life changed. It wants to free someone from sin's bondage, to give sight where there is blindness. So he says to the prostitute, daughter, I love you too much 
to see you continue to sell yourself for money. The tax collector, I love you too much to see your own life absorbed and consumed by your greed. And he hates what sin does to us and he hates what it does to those around us. And if he is a good God, then he cannot allow that sort of behavior, that sort of person, if they don't change, to remain at the party that he's throwing for his son. And so that takes us to the, the ominous ending here in verse 11 of 22. He says, when the, but when the king came in and to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. It was a custom at that time, you came in your wedding clothes, right? It's a black tie affair. You don't come in with your long johns. And he looks and says to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless because he knows he's not dressed right. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Not exactly happily ever after, is it? He invites everyone, but only those with the proper party clothes can stay. Only those who are living according to the king's standard, dressed according to his standard. Now some of us hear these words I mean, it strikes fear in our hearts, right? Oh, is he going to cast me out? Because a lot of us are going, you know, I'm, I honestly have wanted to change. I, I want to be dressed right. I, I want to please God. I, I want to do the right thing. I want to be at the party. And, in fact, I keep telling him, God, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to look at the pornography anymore. I don't want to keep making that change, going back down that road. I want to put that thing down. I want to do what you tell me to do. I mean it. How do I live right? How do I make that change? Well, there was a custom at the wedding feasts in Jesus' day where the giver of the feast would actually provide you a garment at the door, at the entrance into the feast. He said, if you don't have it, I will provide it. This guy is refusing to wear a garment that is freely provided for him by the king. Who turns down free clothes? Not this cheapskate. In Revelation 19, there's this beautiful picture painted of the wedding supper of the Lamb. This is where this is, this is all a nod toward that ultimate feast with Jesus, the Father, throwing the party for the Son. And everyone is invited. Everyone is invited. But we are told you can't come to the king's party unless you're dressed for it. But the gospel is not get out the lint roller and clean yourself off in order to have clean garments. The gospel isn't get yourself right and then I'll let you come to the feast. The gospel says, God says to you, I will wash you in my son's blood and I will offer you a robe of right clothing so that you can enter into the party. Isaiah 61, it's, it, it pointed this out. There's a prophecy. It says, I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God. Here's this prophet. Imagine, have you ever been overwhelmed with joy before? What does that feel like? And why is he overwhelmed with joy? He says, for he, God, has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me in a robe of righteousness. I am like a bridegroom dressed for his wedding or a bride with her jewels. And we're going to sing the song after the message that we are dressed in his righteousness alone. That's why the only reason any of us can be faultless before his throne. Amen? 
It's like when you go into a fancy restaurant that requires a jacket. You guys ever been to one of those? Yeah, me neither. Um, <laughs> and they say, if you, didn't, if you got one or you can't afford one or whatever it is, we're going to give it one to you, right? This is the standard, but if you can't buy one, we will give one to you because that's what we want this restaurant to look like. This is what we demand this restaurant to look like. But there might be somebody who goes, you don't tell me what to do. You don't tell me how to dress. Or, or maybe somebody that wasn't, doesn't want to look the fool that they couldn't afford their own clothing. And so they reject what's being offered to them freely because you say, don't tell me I'm wrong. Don't tell me I'm not enough. Don't tell me I'm inadequate. And again, we're back to the garden. You remember when God confronts Adam and Eve on their sin, what do they do? Yep, God, you're right. We need you. They hid in the bushes in hopes that he wouldn't find out what happened. And when he drags them out of the bushes and questions them, what do they start doing? Blame shifting. It's that woman you gave me. Right? Learn in marriage. Don't ever say that. It's the serpent you gave me. Or it's the serpent. It's, it's his fault, right? They blame shift. And then what do they try to do? They try to make these little fig leaf jumpsuits to try to cover their own nakedness. And God, does God say, oh, that's good. Those are really good looking fig leaves. That was a really good argument. I didn't realize that you had a wife that told you to do that, right? No. But what is it? What happens? He rejects their coverings. This is exactly what the Pharisees are doing. They're trying to hide behind their own self-righteousness. Look what we've done. We are good enough. We don't want anybody else to tell us differently. How do you react when the word of God confronts you? Do you hide? Do you try to hide your sin if, if nobody else finds out? or If God didn't find out or at least if nobody else knows, do you try to cover it up? Do you, do you try to blame shift? Well, it's, it's that person's fault. The only reason I did that thing, you don't know what they did to me. They started it. Or maybe we try to balance the scales. I've done a few good things, but look at all the good things I've been doing. Surely God will see that, that it all comes out in the wash, right? Isaiah 64 tells us what God thinks about this attempt to dress ourselves up. He says, we are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. So here's the problem. We're covered in mud, so we can't clean ourselves off. It's impossible. Our self-help fig leaves are unacceptable, and we're thrown out like the wedding guest in rags. But, but, God didn't leave them there. God did not leave Adam and Eve in their nakedness without any hope going forward. And he stepped in and said, you can't cover yourselves. You can't clean this mess up. You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. But I am going to kill this innocent animal over here. And I'm going to cover you in their skins. And here they are. This is probably how it really looked. A little his and hers action, just like the flannel graph tells us. He clothes them with his own covering. This is exactly what he says to us. You can't clean yourself up. You cannot clean your garment. You cannot buy your way in. You cannot earn your way in. And so what he invites us to do is to take off the fig leaves. What he invites us to do is admit that we're wrong and there's nothing we can do to make ourselves right. And what he does is he says, I want you to acknowledge that I sent my son in your place even though I knew you were going to kill him. And it's actually his shed blood that makes you clean. It's his raised life that I will dress on you. And it's going to be in his right living, his right standing before me, that you will be accepted into the party, not your own. See, the gospel is not that we change our own hearts and then God saves us. 
the gospel is that Jesus died in our place, rose to give us new life, and God offers us a new heart, a heart that is changed, a heart that is like Jesus's, and over time, and I want us to, it's not just the fact that we can't earn it. I also want you to hear the story is saying you will be dressed in righteousness. You will start, it's a messy, grace-filled process, but you'll start to live right. The change in Jesus through his spirit does and can happen. He saves us because of what Jesus has done, but then Jesus starts to change our hearts. So we become the kind of people who say to God, yes, I'll bring in the groceries, and then we can actually do it because we have new hearts. We can start to be the kind of people who do what he says to do and don't do the things that he says not to do, to love as we're called to love, and to worship our God as we're called to worship our God. If you close your eyes and bow your heads with me, I just want us to walk us through this. I uh, ever been through um, a 12-step program? We, we had one here at the church called Celebrate Recovery, which is just 12-step with Jesus right there in the middle of it. And those first three steps are the foundation of our, of our lives. I just believe they're the gospel. And there's three steps. And the first one says, I can't. Second one says, he can. And the third one says, let him. I can't. He can. And let him. And listen, this is a daily, this is not just for the, believer, the unbeliever to come down the aisle and get saved, although it certainly is that. But it is also for the believer. This is the daily process. And maybe you're somewhere in this little cycle today. Maybe you're in step one. This is, I can't. Now we have to recognize, God, I'm wrong. I can't save myself. I can't clean myself up. I can't fix this on my own. I'm not the authority of my own life, but I confess that I've been living like it that I've been trying to control this thing, that I've been trying to manage my addictions and behaviors, and I can't do it. We repent of that and say, I'm, I'm wrong. But maybe you're in step two where it says he can, and you need to believe there is a God who loves you, who loves you enough to accept you where you are, but too much to leave you there. And God says, I want to do for you what you could never do for yourself. Will you trust him? Maybe you're in step three where you're going, God, I need, I need to offer that to you. I need you to do for me what I can never do for myself. I want to receive your free gift, receive that invitation to the party, receive those robes. Father, change my heart from the inside out to become the kind of person who recognizes the vineyard is yours and any fruit that you bear in my life is by your power and it is for your glory. Jesus is the only savior in my life, the only grounds that I can be accepted by you and he's the only king in my life, the only one who gets to call the shots. As we come before you, Father, we recognize the heart change you want to do in us as we admit that we can't, that you're a God who can and did May we let you do in us and through us what we could never do for ourselves. It's in the authoritative, merciful, generous name of Jesus. We pray these things to our cornerstone. Amen.